This is going to be uh, Romans chapter 15. We're going to look at verses uh, 15 to 21. I'm going to back up to, to uh, 14, though, just to get some context. Here's what it says. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points, so that as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. I will not presume to speak of anything except for what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in power of the signs and wonders, in power of the Holy Spirit, so that from Jerusalem round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who have not had no news uh, of him shall see him, and they who had not heard shall understand. You know, Elon Musk is an extraordinary guy. Not only is he the richest man in the world with an estimated $265 billion, but he's also the CEO of the Tesla car company and the founder and CEO and chief engineer of SpaceX. Now, Musk was born in Pretoria, South Africa, where his father was an engineer and a pilot, and his mother was a professional model. His family was wealthy. His dad owned an emerald mine in Zambia. Now, Elon was uh, ambitious, even as a child. He learned uh, computer programming when he was 10, and by 12 years of age, he had created a video game called Blastar, which he sold to PC Office Technology Magazine for about 500 bucks. He graduated from college in 1997, uh, with degrees in uh, physics and economics. He later accepted, was accepted to the PhD program in material science at Stanford, but he dropped out because he wanted to become part of the tech boom. With the help of his brother Kimball, Elon successfully launched a software company known as Zip2, but his big money came from XCOM, which was an online pay service, which was later merged with PayPal and then sold to uh, eBay for $1.5 billion, and he made $175 million on that deal. Now, just about everything Elon Musk touches turns to gold. He owns a majority stock positions in a number of companies, but the two biggest are, and the best known are the car company Tesla, as I mentioned, and SpaceX. But it's not just that Elon is a savvy businessman. He's a visionary who knows how to think outside the box. My wife's brother-in-law, Rick, is an engineer for a large satellite company. He said that Musk came to their company wanting them to design a reusable rocket. You know, this one-and-done disposable rocket? He didn't like that idea. He also wanted one that when you launched it up, it could land back down the same way it went up. <laughs> Rick said they laughed at the idea and told Musk it cannot be done. And Musk said, sure it can. It's just that nobody's figured out how to do it yet. So he did. Well, Tesla is a moneymaker for Elon Musk, but his heart is really in the SpaceX company. His dream? to send men to Mars. Elon Musk wants to send his Starship spacecraft to Mars with the eventual hope of colonizing the planet. In a recent interview, he said this, we don't want to be a one, a, one of those single, species, a single planet species. We want to be a multi-planet species. 
Well, Musk has set 2029 as his hope for launch date for his Starship. Uh, and, you know, to go to Mars, that takes some time. It's going to take about seven months because it's 300 mil, uh, million miles away. Of course, they might be able to do it in less time if they're able to get a good tailwind. Will he accomplish his mission? Uh, I wouldn't put it past them. But, you know, the glory and the greatness of that moment when you can say mission accomplished depends on the value of what it is you've achieved and the difficulties that you've had to overcome to accomplish that mission. Getting men to Mars would be a stunning achievement. But listen carefully. Getting people to heaven is a million times more glorious. And while Elon Musk has to overcome technical problems to fulfill his mission, the Apostle Paul had to overcome religious hostility, cultural barriers, and even demonic powers to fulfill his. And however driven Musk is to get to Mars, Paul's was even, was even more zealous in getting the gospel out to the perishing masses in the Roman Empire. Well, in this section in Romans chapter 15, Paul speaks of the mission that he had been given by God and the unique role that he played in God's plan of redemption. And so today, in order to see how God used Paul and how he can use us in this ongoing mission, we want to consider these verses this morning. So why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Father God, we do pray for grace and mercy as we look at this. Help us to see the application for our lives and the way you can use uh, anyone to accomplish your will. And you certainly use Paul. So bless us now to that end, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, there's three things that we find out about Paul related to his mission given by God. Uh, the first is his commission, his commission, that's 14 to 16. Secondly is his boast, his boast, that's 17 to 19. And finally, his aspiration, and that's 20 to 21. So Paul's commission. What do, what do we mean when we talk about commission? Well, it depends on the context in which we use the word. I mean, if you're talking about something like the Federal Trade Commission, you're talking about a government agency authorized by Congress to regulate and control certain practices. In the case of the FTC, it's to administer antitrust consumer protection in the pursuit of free and fair competition in the marketplace. In 1967, then-President Lyndon Johnson uh, put together what was called the Crime Commission to deal with the rising levels of lawlessness in America. After a number of months, they came out with a report called The Challenge of Crime in a Free Society. And it they had all kinds of experts who gave uh, their reasons for crime, the cost of crime, and possible solutions to crime. One of the suggestions they came out with from the commission was to have the telephone company designate a single universal phone number to be used by all police departments. They did. It's called 911. One of the definitions, though given for commission by Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, is an authorization or a command to act in a prescribed manner or to perform prescribed acts. And in that sense, Paul was certainly commissioned. He received a commission as a result of being called by God and being appointed by Christ. Now, by saying he was called by God, what I mean is not only that he was chosen for salvation, which is true for everybody who ever comes to faith, but also that he was chosen by God to be an instrument in his hands. Do you remember when God was speaking to the prophet Jeremiah when he called him? Jeremiah 1, 4 to 5 says this, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you, and I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Well, likewise, Paul, speaking about his call and his former life, said this in Galatians 1, 13 to 16. He said, You know of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church 
of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. But when God, who had set me apart, listen to this, when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb, and had called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, that I might preach among the Gentiles. Remember what happened. Paul was heading for Damascus to hunt down Christians. And it was at that point on the travels that Paul met the risen Christ. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And then he heard these words. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. And that answer, those words went off like an atomic bomb in the soul of Paul. All of his false ideas about Jesus and the Christians went up in a mushroom cloud. But it's not just that Christ saved him that day, he commissioned him. Paul recounted that event later on to King Agrippa after identifying himself as a living Lord. Jesus had told him on that day, he said, get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you as a minister and a witness not only to the things which you've seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God that they might receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have faith in me. By the way, every person who is a non-Christian is under the dominion of Satan. They have to come into the light, be set free. Paul's conversion, by the way, should be a great encouragement for all of us who try to witness to our family members and friends. I mean, do you have family members and friends that you think they are so hardened to the gospel, so resistant, so unlikely ever to get saved? More unlikely than Saul of Tarsus, that Christ-hating, church-persecuting, proud Pharisee? I mean, his conversion was so sudden and so dramatic that the believers, when they heard about it, thought it was some kind of a ruse, a trap for the Christians. Paul writes this in 1, uh, 23, 24 of Galatians. He says, but they kept hearing, he who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith he tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. You know, Paul just loved to recount God's amazing grace that saved a wretch like him. Indeed, in 1 Timothy 1, 7 to 17, and following us, uh, 1, 5 to 7, it says this. It's a trustworthy statement, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Listen to the next line. Of whom I am the greatest. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example of those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, the eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He, he felt the song coming on. And we sing songs celebrating them, don't we? The vilest, the, the vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. But as I said, God not only called Paul, Christ also commissioned him. And that commission is what's, that he received from Jesus is what stands behind his words that open up in 14 to 15, where Paul says this to the Roman Christians. He says, And concerning you, brethren, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points so that as to remind you again. And this is what we looked at last week. The Christians in Rome were maturing their faith. But even mature believers need to be reminded again and again of the basic truths of the gospel and its implications for our lives. And though Paul neither founded the church in Rome nor had ever even visited it, 
he still had both the right and the responsibility to instruct them in their faith. Why? He said, because of the grace that was given to me from God, specifically to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Remember right before Jesus left to go back to heaven, he said to his disciples, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. I think he had Grantsburg in mind at the time. The apostles' work would be worldwide in scope, but within that worldwide mission, there would be a twofold focus, one in reaching Jews and the other in reaching Gentiles. Writing to the Galatians, Paul mentioned that meeting that he had with the other apostles, James and John and Peter. He says those pillars of the church came to see Quote, that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, meaning the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, meaning the Jews. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that was given to me, James and Cephas, meaning Peter, and John, who were the reputed pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So Paul witnessed to Jews, but his primary focus was the Gentiles. In the working out of God's plan of salvation, he had determined that Paul, this former persecutor of the church, would be the key person he would use to bring the Gentiles to faith. And that is amazing grace, for not only had Paul hounded the Christian, but as a Pharisee, he despised those dirty, idol-worshiping Gentiles, and yet now, having been saved, he was going to spend his life energies, his blood, sweat, and his tears to see those same Gentiles come to faith. You know, it's interesting the way Paul describes his role vis-a-vis the Gentiles. He says this, He was ministering as a priest the gospel of God so that my offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, there were Levitical priests who offered up animal sacrifices for the sins of the people. Time after time, year after year, throats of animals were slit, the blood was drained, part of it put on the altar. But as the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us those sacrifices were only provisional or provisionary, pointing beyond themselves to a great sacrifice that Christ would, himself would someday provide. Now, contrasting these Old Testament priests with Jesus' priesthood, we, we read this in Hebrews uh, 10, 12 to 18. Every priest stands daily ministering an offering time and time again, the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But he, meaning Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for the time when onward until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified, or who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their heart and on their minds I will write them. He then says this, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of sin for these things, there's no longer need for a sacrifice. In the Roman Catholic Church, it's believed that during the Mass, Christ's body and blood are offered up and sacrificed again. Just as Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice on the cross, so now, Based on that, the priest re-offers the sacrifice of Jesus through the wafer and wine, which they believe literally turns into the body and blood of Christ. That's interesting because in the New Testament, 
Nowhere will you find um, pastors referred to as priests. They're called elders, pastors, overseers, but not priests. We don't perform a recurring sacrifice of Christ. We proclaim a once and for all time sacrifice of Christ. Now notice that Paul says that he ministers as a priest of the gospel. That's why it's kind of an interesting way of putting that. The main task of a pastor is to proclaim the good news about Jesus and to teach people, God's people, the implications of that good news for their life. That's the focus point of our service, the sermon, not communion. And why did Paul preach the gospel? He said, so my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. What Paul was offering up to God was not wafers and wine, said to be the body and blood of Christ, but rather pagan Gentiles now converted to Christ who've become acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And I got to stop to say this. You become acceptable to God the moment you believe the gospel. You're sanctified, set apart by God through the Holy Spirit to bring about the end is the reason that Paul was commissioned. That was Paul's life mission, one that he was thrilled to be involved in. And we see that in the next section where we find Paul's boast. Now you've heard that phrase, bragging rights. The Britannica Dictionary defines that phrase as meaning a good reason to talk with pride about something that you have done. A high school football team wins a state championship. Players are running off the field at the end of the game, whooping and hollering, we're number one, we're number one. President Biden likes to brag that his administration has added more jobs to the U.S. economy than any other administration in the history of the country. But the problem is those aren't no new jobs. Those are old jobs coming back that had been lost because the government shut down the economy for two years. I mean, he's like a rooster crowing in the morning because he thinks he made the sun come up. But it's not just athletes and politicians who like to brag. Prideful boasting is a common vice in humanity. I mean, lots of guys are like Tom Turkeys. They puff up and strut around. Think of the actresses who show up at the Oscar awards. They step out of the limos onto the red carpet wearing a $10,000 Versace dress, she pauses, poses for the flashing cameras. Like a peacock, she shows off her feathers for all to see. By the way, have you ever seen a peacock when it actually does that? That phrase, proud as a peacock, I can, if you look them in the eye, you can see the pride. Because <laughs> you notice they do it that way too, don't they? They don't just stop. They turn every direction like, you got to see this. Look at this. Except for I'm going to give the peacocks a credit. I think the peacock is actually thinking this. I had a creator who made this. What do you think of him? Jesus said, whoever humbles himself will be exalted, but whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Paul asked the Corinthian Christians who were puffed up with pride in the exercise of their spiritual gifts that God had given. He said this, for who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't? Daniel described the end times ruler, who we know as the Antichrist, as one who had a, a mouth uttering great boasts, Daniel 7, 8. The whole way that, that God went about saving people was intended to do away with human boasting. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, we read this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. And especially for Christians who've received this grace of God, 
by him choosing to save us, we have no bragging rights. As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, he said, For consider your calling, brethren. Not many of you are wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. There's not very many wealthy, influential people who get saved. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world, <laughs> that's us, to shame the things that are wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame those things which are strong. The base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you're in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Well, Paul not only taught that, he also practiced that in his own life. And we see that starting in verses 17 to 19. Because of the unique role that he was playing in the plan of God's salvation, in bringing in the Gentiles, he says, Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except for what God, or what Christ, has accomplished through me. So Paul brags, but not in what he has done for Christ, but in what Christ is doing through him. For as he wrote elsewhere, it's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work, for his own good pleasure. He did his ministry for the glory of God by the power of God. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he writes this. He says, We proclaim him, meaning Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we might present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which works so mightily within me. Paul was impressed with what Paul did because he knew it was Jesus who was empowering him to do it. And what was the outcome of God empowering Paul? It results, it says in verse 18, in the obedience of the Gentiles. God's goal for Paul's ministry, as he said even at the beginning of this letter, was to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. And I want to camp there just for a second. His goal is to bring about faith that flows into obedience. If there is no obedience, it's because there really is no faith. The church in America is filled with millions upon millions of people who are convinced they're going to heaven because they were baptized as a baby, if they're Catholic, or they were baptized and confirmed, if they were Lutheran, or they walked an aisle, if they were Southern Baptist, or raised a hand with every eye closed and every head bowed. But what they're actually trusting in is not Christ, but in what they did. Jesus said, many are going to say to me on that day, not a few, many are going to say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do miracles in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? And he's going to say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. In other words, when we live a life no different than unbelievers, it's because we are no different than unbelievers. Real faith produces transformed lives. If there's not a transformed life, there's not real faith. That's what Paul was to bring about, the obedience of faith, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles, he said. And he says that this, he did this by word and deed in power and signs and wonder and power of the Spirit. Paul did miracles. Now, that's only the apostles, and we're told elsewhere that that was one of the authenticating signs of an apostle was that he performed miracles. Can you think of some of those miracles that he did? My favorite is when Paul was speaking 
late at night in an upper room where it was hot, and there was this young man named Eutychus who was sitting in the windowsill. And it says, Paul talked on and on and on. By the way, there's a lesson here for preachers and for listeners. And it says, Eutychus, whoops, he slipped down, fell down, broke his neck. They went down there. He's dead, he's dead. Paul says, no, I think his spirit's still in him. He was dead. Paul healed him. Paul brought him back from death. I'm guessing Paul was a little, no, I got to be careful. It says he went back and finished teaching for the rest of the night. (laughs) Don't fall asleep. Well, you're fine. You're not going to fall far on this one, I guess. But what what he says, he says, by the message he proclaimed, the miracles he performed, the Spirit of God was using Paul to bring about a transformation in the lives of these formerly idol-worshiping Gentiles. And he says this, so that from Jerusalem, round about as far as Illyricum, Illyricum, where is Illyricum? What modern-day country? Croatia. Been there recently. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So Paul had planted churches in key cities across Asia Minor in his 30-year ministry. So was he ready to retire to a nice villa in Cyprus and play shuffleboard the rest of his life? No, he still had big plans, big aspirations. That brings us to our last point. Paul's aspirations is found in 2021. You know, we're finishing the month of May here, and this is the time when high school seniors are having their graduation parties, right? How many of you have been to this year already? Uh, What do you do when you attend one? What's the protocol? Well, you're supposed to walk in, and the first thing you do is look for a place to put down your card uh, that you gave. Then you look around, see if there's anyone you know, you wave to a few of them, and then uh, you have a little small chat with uh, people as you're going in, and then you're waiting for the uh, the person who's graduating for them to be free, and then you walk up to them, and uh, you say this, you say, congratulations. Uh, So what are your plans after school? And some will say something like this. Well, I plan on going to college and getting a degree in finance, and then hopefully I'll get an internship with an investment company. Or uh, I'm going to go into the nursing program at Pine Tech. That way I can live at home uh, while I'm going to school and come out without a load of debt. Or I'm going to get my commercial driver's license. I want to be an over-the-road truck driver. What you don't want to hear is this. Well, I don't really have much for plans, so I I think I'll take the first year off, stay home, live off my parents, stay up late playing video games, and sleep in past noon. I I haven't amounted to much so far, and I'd kind of like to keep that record going. (laughs) Paul was not a putz. By the way, when I put the word putz in, I spelled it P-U-T-Z. My computer doesn't recognize it. It Evidently, it doesn't speak Yiddish. (laughs) It started with big vision and grand plans, and for the most part, he had achieved them. During those years, he hadn't been looking to put another Baptist church on another corner in Tennessee. He wanted to go as a pioneer missionary. And he writes this, he says, And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but it's written, They who had no news shall hear of him, and they who had never heard shall understand. You know, American history is filled with stories of explorers and frontiersmen. Zebulon Pike, Lewis and Clark, Daniel Boone. Do you know he was already a legend in his own time? He said he used to like to read the books about him to see what the amazing things he had done. <laughs> he wrote this, Many heroic actions and chivalrous adventures are related of me, which only exist in the regions of fancy. <laughs> With me, the world has taken great liberties, and yet I've been but a common man. Well, for some, men and women, 
They don't want to take the well-trod path. They want to boldly go where no man has gone before. That was the Apostle Paul. He wanted to preach, not for those who've heard the old, old story. He wanted to preach Christ where he had never been heard of at all. And he knew that he was fulfilling the words of an ancient prophecy made by Isaiah that said, They who had no news shall see, and they who had not heard shall understand. And you know, it's stunning, but even 2,000 years later, there's millions, billions of people who still never heard. That's why we send out missionaries and support them. And even in our country where the gospel has, has shined from the very beginning, it's amazing to me the number of people when you sit down and explain the gospel to them, and I ask them, I said, has anyone ever explained this to you? Well, no, not really. That's where we come in. We have to tell them. I ask a question, will Elon Musk accomplish his mission of getting to Mars? He might. Will they someday have a colony living on Mars? Yeah, I doubt it. But if there ever is, we're just going to have to spend a little bit more money on missions to go there to make sure that the Martians get the gospel. But until then, we have to do our part in bringing the good news to a perishing world. God left the task of getting the gospel out to his church. He didn't leave it to angels. May we rise to the challenge and give everything we have that people might come to know our Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I think back to the 1800s, late 1700s. Man, there was a century where oh, the gospel was going all over the world. A lot of them were Englishmen. And I heard one person, or read one person, who said that one of the reasons there were so many English missionaries were because young English boys were raised as seafaring people and with a sense of adventure. But Lord, there could be no greater adventure than to go to the places where the gospel has not been named, where Jesus has not been heard, and where the demonic forces are quite strong, and then live and die so that other people would come to know Christ. Lord, the fact that we're sitting here today is a result of Paul's ministry. And the fact that uh, there are other people who have heard the gospel throughout the world is a result of the church that's come after them. So, Father, I pray for grace and mercy. Help us. Give us boldness to witness to people. Give us opportunities to share the gospel. We ask again that uh, through the witnessing uh, that goes on through the radio and the gospel preaching through the Internet that you'd call many people in. And then fill us with joy, Lord, because uh, your kingdom is going to be full. Bless us now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.